In 1 Peter 3, 8-12, Peter begins with the phrase, to sum up, which means to bring the topic of submission to its conclusion. Previously, Peter has addressed the submission of citizens to governments, employees to their employers, and wives and husbands to one another. He now addresses all of you, denoting Peter's initial readers, Jewish believers, scattered, suffering, and slandered. However, because God inspires the text, it applies to all believers throughout time, irrespective of our situations or surroundings. In writing about submission, Peter has applied specific doctrines to each realm of submission. He applied the doctrines of holiness and obedience to the realm of government, chapter 2, 13-17. Next, Peter applied the doctrines of salvation and obedience to the realms of work, 1 Peter 2, 18-25. He then applied the doctrines of love and obedience to the realm of family, in chapter 3, 1-6. As Peter now summarizes his exhortation on submission, he returns to the doctrine of love. Writing a final word on submission to all believers, Peter concludes with a twofold admonishment, love one another and love one's enemies. Let's begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, loving one another. The text begins to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. In verse 8, Peter admonishes believers to love one another by demonstrating five qualities. Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. When believers practice these five qualities, the Christian community will be distinct from the world around them. As Karen Job states, the Christian community is to be an alternate society where believers should not have to face the same kinds of insults and hostility that come from those outside the church. Now, in order for Job's statement to be true, believers then must adhere to and demonstrate these five qualities. The Christian community is to be an alternate society where we should not have to face the same insults and hostility that we would outside the church. First, loving one another means to be harmonious. The term harmonious, homophrone, means to be of the same mind or to have the same unity of spirit. It was this unity for which Jesus prayed, John 17, 20-21. I do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word, and that they all be one. That both Peter and Paul exhorted believers to be harmonious indicates the Christian community is prone to division and dissension. Romans 15.5 Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, 
and the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians 2.2 Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, being of the same mind or having unity of the spirit does not mean that there's always going to be an agreement of opinions. Believers are going to have different differences of opinion. But those differences should not divide the church. And where differences exist, we need to seek God's wisdom. Philippians 3.15 Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Harmonious means not being self-willed or demanding one's way. It is considering the other person's perspective. How about you? Are you harmonious? Can you say that you think of the other believer's perspective and not just your own? Can you say that you are willing to set aside differences of opinion, not doctrine, but differences of opinion for the good of the church? Or are you being self-willed? Are you one who demands your own way? Nothing will destroy the unity in a church quicker than a quote-unquote believer who is self-willed or demanding of their own way. Harmonious also conveys the idea of sharing a common faith or ethical tradition. In this case, the common faith refers to that body of doctrine known as biblical orthodoxy. Agreeing on biblical orthodoxy implies that we must reject any religious belief that informed our former lives. Second, loving one another means to be sympathetic. Sympathetic, sympathes, is to share in the sufferings of someone. Jesus Christ demonstrated what it means to be sympathetic. Matthew chapter 9, 35 and 36. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, Seeing the people, now here it is, he felt compassion for them. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now Christ shared in the sufferings of humanity in two ways. One, he experienced human weaknesses. That is, he became tired, hungry, and anxious. Two, he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. Now, believer, you and I are to follow his example. That is, we are to identify with what others are feeling. We should be people filled with sympathy or compassion. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers... All the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
We need to be demonstrating sympathy by caring about and acting upon the joys and sorrow of one another. Now, friends, you've got to examine yourself and ask yourself, are you a sympathetic person? Do you sorrow when others sorrow? Do you rejoice when others rejoice? Or are you not phased at all by what your brothers and sisters in Christ are going through? Again, nothing will destroy the unity of a church quicker than not only not being harmonious, but not being sympathetic. And I'm afraid that we live in an age and a day in which there are quote-unquote professed Christians who have no sympathy, who feel nothing in regards to other believers. Oh, they might feel something if it's somebody they like or somebody they're close to, but, you know, really, there could be somebody else in the church that they really don't care for. They're going through something, they're struggling with something, and they feel absolutely no empathy, sympathy, compassion, or anything for them. Now, you're to be like Christ, and Christ saw people through the lens of compassion. He sympathized with them in their weaknesses. Third, loving one another means to be brotherly. Brotherly refers to the love between siblings. You see, at the moment of spiritual birth, believers become part of God's family and are to regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you regard fellow believers as your brothers and sisters. The demonstration of brotherly love is how the unsaved world identifies you or me as a believer. John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brotherly love is not based upon appeal or agreeableness. It is always caring, even when confronting one's brother or sister because they share a common bond. You don't have to agree with somebody to love them. You don't have to be drawn to that person to love them like your brother or sister in Christ. You love them because of the common bonds you have in Christ. Additionally, brotherly love means to be devoted to one another, Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That word devoted there in Romans 12.10 means that brotherly love is affectionate, tender, and warm. It is not offered begrudgingly or belligerently. Now again, you think about the community of believers. You think about fellow Christians. And are you treating them like your brother or sister? Do you love them like a brother or sister? Are you affectionate towards them? Are you tender to them? Are you warm to them? Or are there some that you just don't want to bother with? There's just some that, man, they just annoy you. And, And the reality is, folks, because of different personalities, we are going to have people that we don't necessarily uh aren't necessarily drawn to or aren't necessarily, you know, look forward to being together with. But the fact of the matter is we have to set aside those differences because we've been called to be harmonious and we've got to be affectionate towards them, not just towards the people that appeal to us or the people that agree with us. You need to examine yourself. 
And you say, well, I, 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 I'll, I'll show them tenderness. I'll show them worth. Well, let me ask you something. What is your heart attitude? If you're doing it begrudgingly, if you're like, oh, yes, I, I care about that person, and inside you're just seething, then you really aren't, you really aren't displaying brotherly love. It's not displayed or offered begrudgingly or belligerently. Fourth, loving one another means to be kind-hearted. Kind-hearted means to have a tender or sensitive attitude towards others, especially those who are suffering. Think about that. When someone's suffering, what is your initial reaction? Well, they got what they deserved. If that's your initial reaction... You, don't, you are not kind-hearted. Well, they probably deserved it. You're not kind-hearted. Well, they must have committed some sin. You're not kind-hearted. You see, tenderness or kind-heartedness is rooted in the mercy we received when our sins were forgiven by God. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Kindness or tender-heartedness is a hallmark of the Christian life. Colossians 3.12 So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Friends, failure to show kindness towards your brother or sister in Christ is the grounds upon which can be determined whether or not God's love abides in you. 1 John 3, 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Maybe God has blessed you with resources, and there's a, here comes another brother or sister in Christ that has not been blessed with those same resources. They're in need. And you have the ability to meet that need, but you close your heart off towards that person, even though they're a brother or sister in Christ, but man, they got a personality you don't like, or, or there, there's something, there's some pet peeve about them that you just don't care for. And so you close your heart off to them. And here's what the Bible says. How is it possible for the love of God to abide in you? You've got to answer that question. Because if the love of God is abiding in you, whether you agree with them or they appeal to you or not, shouldn't matter. If they're your brother and sister in Christ, you're going to want to help them. So you've got to examine yourself. Fifth, loving one another means to be humble in spirit. That humble in spirit refers to the lowliness of mind. William MacDonald says that lowliness makes us conscious of our own nothingness and enables us to esteem others better than ourselves. It is the opposite of conceit and arrogance. There ought to be no place for arrogance or conceit in the body of Christ. Now in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century AD, humility was contemptuous. Anyone practicing humility would be disparaged as shameful and unable to defend themselves. Furthermore, an entire community practicing humility would have been viewed as countercultural. According to Pilch and Molina, humble people, quote, did not threaten or challenge another's rights, nor did they claim more for themselves than had been duly allowed them 
in life. You see, to be clear here, humility or lowliness of mind is not thinking less of oneself, but thinking less about oneself. And Christ demonstrated what humility looked like when he washed the feet of his disciples. John 13, 13 to 15, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. See, Jesus placed the needs of his disciples over himself. Hence, humility displays genuine gratitude and respect for other believers by putting them first. Philippians 2, 3-4 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. How about it, Christian? Do you put your interest above your brother or sister in Christ's interest. That's what we have to consider. Really, that it, it, we're, we're talking about selfishness here. Well, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to, this is what I want. Yeah, but we have to ask not what's best for me. What is best for others? What is best for the community of believers? Oh, sure, it may be convenient for you, it may be all right for you, doesn't mean that it is good or all right or okay for somebody else. And again, there's this tendency that, oh, we have our small little pocket of, of friends that, well, we, we esteem them, we think of them, but we're, we, listen, this has got to go beyond your inner circle. This has got to extend throughout the entire community, your entire Christian community. Additionally, Pride should have no place amongst God's people. Sadly, there is a lack of humility, and there's a desire for self-aggrandizement amongst those who are serving Christ. And when someone serves to draw attention to themselves, they are not serving Christ, they're serving themselves. To those who humble themselves, God provides grace. But to the proud, He, he opposes. James 4, 6, which quotes Proverbs six seventeen. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now by examining these five qualities, a chiastic structure appears in the Greek text. Now a chiastic structure is a pattern that is formed by paralleling key words or phrases. And this pattern forms the Greek letter chi, which appears as the letter X. So draw an X on a piece of paper. Give yourself enough room on that paper because you're going to want to add things to this X. But you draw, draw an X. Now the chi or the X has four points. Top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right. And those points intersect where the two lines cross. The first quality is harmonious. You can place that on the upper left point of your X. The fifth quality is humble. You can place that at the bottom right point of the X. That tells us that harmony and humility are related. Now pride is the lack of humility, and where there is pride, guess what? 
there can be no harmony. Thus, a lack of humility results in disunity. The second quality is sympathetic. You can place that on the upper right point of your X. The fourth quality is kind-hearted. You can place that on the lower left point of your X. That tells us that sympathy and kind-hearted or compassion are tied to one another. Sympathy is sharing feelings of joy and sorrow for others, whereas kind-hearted is acting upon those feelings to meet others' needs. All four points intersect upon the third quality, which is brotherly. That brotherly love is the middle term upon which the other four intersect. And it demonstrates that it is the most important of the five qualities. So where those two lines intersect, write down the word brotherly. You see, without brotherly love, the other four qualities would not exist as such. Perhaps there'd be appearances of those qualities, but they would be paltry manifestations at best. So friend, you need to ask yourself, are you loving one another? That is, are you harmonious? Do you, are, are you have, do you have the same mind or do you have unity of the Spirit with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you sympathetic? Are you sharing in the sufferings of your fellow believers? Are you willing to identify with their weaknesses? Are you brotherly? Do you have brotherly love? Do you, have, do you, do you, do you see your fellow Christians as your brothers and sisters in Christ? And are you loving them? Uh, for are you kind-hearted? Okay, can you, do you have any tenderness or sensitivity towards other people, especially those who are suffering? Do you have any mercy for them? And are you humble in spirit? Are you willing to put others above yourself? Or are you thinking more of yourself than others? Now let's go to verses 9 through 12, and we'll see the second part of this admonition here. Again, love is the summation of submission. We saw first that we're to love one another. And now here in verses 9 through 12, we're to love our enemies. Love one's enemies. Verse 9 begins, Not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and purpose, excuse me, and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now Peter changes focus from submission within the Christian community to submission in a non-Christian society. And thus he exhorts us to not only love our Christian brothers and sisters, but to love those who insult or wrong us. Now loving is sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. It is not merely an expression of one's emotion, but one's volition. It is choosing to do good even towards the unlikable and unlovable. And we admit that it is easy to love the, lo the lovable, and it is challenging to love the unlovable, such as one's enemies. Now the underlying principle of Peter's admonition is Christ's teaching in Luke 6, 27-28. Love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, Christ practiced what he preached when hanging upon the cross. He prayed to his Father in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Paul also applied the principle of non-retaliation. Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 1 Corinthians 4, 12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. Joel Green refers to this as, quote, the Christian ethic of enemy love, which entails opting out of concerns for preserving one's own status and reputation in society and refusing to participate in the give and take of challenge reposts that helped define conventional social relations. The phrase returning for evil or insult for insult refers to retaliating with insults defamation, and other verbal abuses. The term insult refers to abusive words falsely spoken to damage an individual's reputation. According to J.H. Eliot, during the Greco-Roman culture, such tactics were the weapons typically employed in an agonistic honor and shame society for challenging the honor of others and publicly shaming and discrediting those who are different or regarded as one's competitor. Sadly, these same tactics are still employed on ball fields and in boardrooms, playgrounds and plazas, and in courts, and yes, even churches. And friends, this ought not be. Instead of retaliating, Peter urges believers to be non-retaliatory and to give a blessing. Such a response of non-retaliation was radical in the Greco-Roman culture and would cause unbelievers to take notice, and it's just as radical today. At the minimum, giving a blessing means that believers are to be kind and promote the well-being of those who have injured or insulted them. More so, giving a blessing means to pray that God would place His gracious favor on them and intervene in their lives and invoking blessings as part of the believer's priestly service. Deuteronomy 21, verse 5, The priests come near, for the Lord God has chosen them to serve Him and to bless in the name of the Lord. That's what we're to be doing. And at the heart of such a blessing is that they might be saved, and in turn, as 1 Peter 2, 12 says, in turn glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the question is, what is your reaction when people injure or insult you? And, and let's be honest here, our normal reaction is to what? Want to get even. Want to retaliate. And yet, Christ says we're to be non-retaliatory. Instead of insulting them with insults, instead of returning evil for evil, we are to bless them. Pray for them. See, Peter goes on to say, for you are called for the very purpose. The verb called is an invitation to accept responsibility for a particular task. The very purpose refers to the believer's duty of blessing or praying for their enemies. Hence, we have been tasked by God with the responsibility of blessing our enemies. Think about it. Think about the last time somebody wronged you. 
What was your reaction? Did you bless them? Did you pray for them? Oh, you may have prayed for them. Oh, Lord, take them out. Wipe them out. But instead, we're to pray that God might graciously save them. Believers bless their enemy. Again, coming back to the text. Believers bless their enemies so that we might inherit a blessing. Now, might inherits in the subjunctive mood, indicating possibility or probability. The verb means to receive something as a possession or inheritance. And the blessing here is twofold. There's the possibility or probability of receiving a blessing when we bless. See, one, the blessing refers to the reward awaiting believers in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So if you're a peacemaker, your reward is you're called a son of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you suffer persecution, here's your reward, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So did you catch that there? If you are being insulted or injured, or any kind of false thing said about you, because of your, that you're a Christian, because you're serving the Lord, uh, you're, you're doing what He wants you to do, whatever that may be, He says, Rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. So when you bless them, when you don't retaliate and bless them instead, there's a great reward in heaven for you. Now, two, the blessing refers to a reward the believer receives in this life. If believers bless their enemies, there's the possibility that we will be presently blessed with freedom from persecution. Think about that. We bring our own persecution on ourselves at times because we retaliate rather than pray and bless them. Something to think about. Now, regardless of whether we are blessed, we are to bless those who insult and injure us because God has commanded it. Now, Peter turns to Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, in verses 10 to 12. Psalm 34 focused on God's suffering people's deliverance, which is an appropriate text for Peter's suffering and slandered readers. In verse 10, the term for indicates that Peter is presenting the next several verses of Psalm 34, 12 to 16, as a motivation to love one's enemies. Now notice first the phrase, the one who desires life to love and see good days, refers to enjoying, i.e. to love, a pleasant life, i.e. good days, regardless of one's circumstances. A good day is not a day without fears, troubles, broken hearts, or affliction. See, let's examine Psalm 34 in its entirety to get an idea of what God calls a good day. Psalm 34, verse 4, 6, 17, and 19. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So a good day isn't necessarily a day without fear, trouble, broken hearts, or afflictions. We're going to have them. Instead, a good day is when believers experience answers to prayer, God's goodness, and God's presence. Again, Psalm 34, verses 4 to 8 and 18. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. The poor man cried. The Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear Him, and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The Lord is near or present with the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. As Warren Wiersbe states, we can decide to endure life and make it a burden, escape life as though we were running from a battle, or enjoy life because we know God is in control. Now, in order to enjoy a pleasant life in this present hostile world, we must meet three conditions. First, we must keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. The word evil there refers to that which is morally reprehensible, wicked, or injurious. Deceit includes fraud, guile, treachery, and lying. Peter knew all too well the travesty caused by speaking evil and deceit. In his denial of Jesus, Peter spoke evil by cursing and spoke deceit by lying. How often do we create our own problems because we have no control of our mouths? Proverbs 18, 6 and 7. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Friend, God demands our speech be edifying and graceful. Ephesians 4, 29 and 5, 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Speech that is not edifying or graceful includes words that are unwholesome or foul. Foul language includes filthiness, silly talk, and coarse jesting. Filthiness refers to that which is obscene. Silly talk are words that are indecent or dirty. Coarse jesting is immoral humor. Believer, you and I would do well to pray on a regular basis, Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, and keep watch over the door of my lips. So we, number one, if we're, if we're going to receive this blessing, if we're going to enjoy a pleasant life in this present hostile world, we need to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. Second, we must turn away from evil and do good. We must turn away from evil and do good. The, vo- the verb must turn away means to avoid something because it is despised and loathed. Again, evil refers to that which is morally reprehensible, wicked, or injurious. We are not merely to avoid immorality and wickedness. We are to despise it. On the other hand, we're to do good. Good is that which is morally excellent, righteous, or beneficial. The good or godly behavior of believers serves as a witness to our enemies. As well, it is the means of silencing them. 1 Peter 2, 12 and 15. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
So again, number one, if we want to enjoy this pleasant life in a present hostile world, we've got to keep our tongues from evil and lips from speaking deceit. Second, we've got to turn away from evil and do good. And third, we must seek peace and pursue it. We must seek peace and pursue it. The verb seek means to strive for or desire something. The term pursue is to go after something with earnestness and diligence. And peace refers to harmonious relations or freedom from disputes. Now these two verbs, seek and pursue, indicate an ongoing and conscious effort to make peace a reality. Thus, we are to spare no effort in striving to have harmonious relations, even with those who have injured or insulted us. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Friends, you and I cannot be indifferent or passive about seeking and pursuing peace. Matthew 5, 23 to 25. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law, while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. It is incumbent, believer, that we be the driving force in reconciliation. Seeking peace does not necessarily mean that we're going to be best friends with our enemies. It does mean, though, at the very least, there is civility between the two parties. And if peace is not achieved, it should only be because the other party didn't want peace. How about a believer? Are you a peacemaker? Are you somebody that's seeking and pursuing peace, or are you just somebody that loves to keep it stirred up? Listen, as believers, we're to seek and pursue peace. See, that's part of doing good, seeking and pursuing peace. Again, it's not that we have to be their friends, but we ought to at least be civil. Now, Peter offers three words of encouragement to the scattered and suffering in verse 12. First, we need to remember that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. That's you and me, the people of God. God fixes His sight upon us and watches over us for our good. And so when you and I are insulted or injured by someone else, we can remember that God has seen it. He could have prevented it, but He has allowed it for a purpose. Second, we need to remember that His ears attend to their prayers or our prayers. God attunes His ears to the prayers of His people. That's a great comfort when we're suffering and when we're slandered. Believer, you and I have confidence knowing that God listens when we call upon Him. And since God is listening, we know He will answer. 1 John 5, 14-15 This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Third, believer, you and I must remember that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. While this statement is a word of encouragement to us, it is a warning to those who injure or insult God's people. That Yahweh sets His face against an evildoer implies more than disapproval. It is a declaration of judgment and damnation. Leviticus 17.10 I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
Ezekiel 14, 8, I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and cut him off from among my people so you will know that I am the Lord. This is why the psalmist pleaded with God not to turn his face from him in his time of distress. Psalm 102, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let not my cries, or excuse me, let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Now, friends, sometimes in seeking peace, we will encounter those who want war. And in those situations, you and I can trust God to protect us and defeat our enemies. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Revenge, even if it's just hurling an insult, is unacceptable behavior, believer. Vengeance belongs only to God and those who he appoints to take vengeance in his place. Instead of reacting in anger, we must respond in Christ-like fashion by ministering to our oppressor's needs. This entire text runs counter to the culture in which we live today. The spirit of the age is to rage and retaliate against one's boss, one's friends, and one's oppressors by any means necessary. And that same spirit once indwelled Peter. When Jesus predicted his impending death, Peter arrogantly rebuked him. Peter, excuse me, Peter argued with other disciples as to who was the greatest. And while his enemies were arresting Jesus, Peter drew his fishing knife and sliced off Malchus's ear. His actions were a far cry from loving one another and loving his enemies. Believers, we have not been called to rage or retaliate. We've been called to submission to one another and to one's enemies. And submission to one's enemies, or excuse me, submission to one another is being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. Submission to one's enemies means instead of hurling insults and curses, we make every effort to pray for and bless them. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank and praise you for this difficult text. Father, it's difficult because it requires us to examine ourselves. First and foremost, in our relations with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What type of attitude do we have towards them? Are we displaying these five qualities, these five characteristics that should be evident to a world that we love one another? Are we submitting to one another? And Father, in that area of loving our enemies, I pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves in that regard as well. That, Lord, we might consider our behavior when we are wronged and how we respond. That, Father, we might consider what comes forth from our lips, what comes out in our actions when evil is done to us. Father, we are to be peacemakers. We are to be the people who seek and pursue peace. And so, Father, I pray that you'd give us a change of heart. That, Father, we'd be those who are seeking to make peace where it is possible and probable. Lord, we want to live a pleasant life. We want a good life. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us not only to seek and pursue peace, but, Lord, you'll help us to turn from evil and to do good. That, Lord, you'll keep our lips from evil, from immoral, 
from lying, from guile, from slander. And that, Lord, we might use our mouths to edify and give grace. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.